Well, a very good morning to you all. I want you to just grab your Bibles and just jump right in. Open them to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 this morning. We come to a brand new chapter in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, entering chapter 6 this morning. And in this chapter, we, we start to see more of a turn in the ministry of Jesus. Not that Jesus is turning, but the people are starting to turn against him. So far, we've seen that the people love Jesus. But over time, that's going to change, and more and more we're going to see them turn against him, and it's going to begin even in his own hometown. Jesus is starting to be rejected, and and his first big taste of it, you could say, comes in his own place of upbringing. kind of makes sense, though, because Jesus was really offensive. Do you know that? Jesus was terribly offensive to people and, and terribly politically incorrect. I'm sure it's no surprise to you, but it seems that political correctness has won the day in America. We now have a long list of things you can't say or do because they're not politically correct. And if you if you cross the line, there's consequences. You can lose your job, you can be a social outcast, you can even go to jail. And recently things are getting extreme. You see it, for instance, in youth sports. Now in, in some youth baseball leagues, nobody loses. There are no more strikeouts, everyone bats every inning, and everyone wins. Well, not quite everyone. One, one kid, a nine-year-old in Connecticut, who was banned for being too good of a pitcher. And the parents at first thought it was a safety issue, but he never hit anybody. And so they said it was, then it was an emotional issue that he was so good, the other kids couldn't develop. And they actually succeeded in getting him banned from pitching. Which just goes to show you that in the game of political correctness, there are losers. There are losers. You see, there are times when someone must be offended. There are certain impasses where it's you're either going to offend this group or that group, and someone's, someone has to be offended, so who's going to be? A similar story of extreme political, political correctness comes out of a California high school where five students were sent home after they refused to remove their American flag t-shirts on Cinco de Mayo, which is the Mexican day of independence. And so what's that message being sent? So you, can, you, you can't wear your country's flag as a t-shirt in your country lest you offend someone else celebrating the holiday of another country. The teacher said they were trying to be sensitive to Mexican-Americans, which is very nice, and that would be a valid point that wearing an American flag on a Mexican holiday would be offensive if this were Mexico. But you see, someone has to be offended. Someone in that case, either the kids or the Mexican-Americans, someone has to be offended. Who's it going to be? The basic idea of what we call political correctness is not, not wrong. We as Christians can, of course, support not trying to hurt people, not discriminating, not saying hateful things. Of course, that is right on. But as Christians, you need to start to see the writing on the wall and realize a few things. First realize, again, in the game of political correctness, there are losers. Someone's going to have to be offended. It's only a question of whom. And secondly, in a society whose morals are more and more becoming diametrically opposed to Christianity's, who do you think is going to get the short end of that stick? It's you. It's Christians. And this is precisely what we see happening now. It is no longer politically correct to offend any group except Christians. That's okay. We can tolerate that. And forget youth sports. Talk about pro sports. You all may remember Tim Tebow, famous quarterback. 
He wore his Christian faith on his sleeve. And he had this really upstanding or outstanding and upright character. But what did the media do to him? They, they just tore him apart. They ridiculed him, slandered him. They derided his faith. But at the same time, this past week, Michael Sam became the first openly gay NFL player. And what did the news media do to him? Not to say they should have slandered him or, or said bad things about him, but they championed him, they celebrated him, and any NFL player who voiced dissent was fined. It just goes to show you our society has shifted. Someone's going to have to be offended. And now more and more Christians are going to get the short end of that stick. Now it's, it's all of a sudden acceptable for students at Harvard to organize a satanic black mass. And yeah, that's another thing that happened this past week. Group of students got together on the campus, or there was their plan, dress in black, wear horned masks, and participate in this ritual that was to mimic and mock the Lord's Supper. And talk about being offensive to Christians. I mean, how offensive, but did Harvard stop them? Well, no. The school said, although they disapproved, they had to let it happen out of their respect for free speech. Now, thankfully, there's enough social pressure to put a stop to it, so it didn't happen. But here's the point. Do you think Harvard would have allowed a student to burn the Quran out of respect for free speech on campus? Not on your life. There's no way. A culture shift has taken place against Christianity in this country, and we are now the party that is acceptable to offend and to or persecute, to wrong. In reality, it doesn't surprise us. At least it shouldn't surprise us. Those in the world will always oppose God, his people, his truth. Really, what fellowship has the light with the darkness? And, you know, in, in reality, the darker things get, that just means the brighter the light of Christ will shine. It's honestly not always a bad thing because it shows the glory of the gospel, how much more it can transform lives. You see a greater contrast between what the Lord can do for a person. But not all Christians feel that way. A lot of churches and a lot of pastors are importing this political, this extreme political correctness into the church, which means they're opting to censor themselves and their own message and even the gospel so as not to offend those in the world. Rather than face the mounting pressure and persecution, they drop all things offensive, anything that might offend someone, and pander to society, but they keep the name church. But look, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. The problem is that with most of these churches, in so compromising, they're giving up the only thing that can actually change society and transform lives, and that's the hope of the gospel. The church then becomes nothing more than a social club. When you start pulling at that string, you start taking things away from the gospel, the whole thing will unravel. Some churches who have abandoned any and all mention of sin or judgment or hell or even substitutionary atonement, things like that, they become devoid of all meaning and power. And why is that? It's because you can't really get the good news without the bad news first. And that bad news, it is a part of the gospel. But the thing is, that bad news, it's really offensive It really offends people. But it's necessary because no one was ever saved who was not first completely made desperate by that bad news. 
And you're asking, well, what, what are you talking about? What's the bad news? The bad news is that you're a sinner. You're lost. You're guilty before God. You stand condemned before a perfectly righteous judge. And a judgment awaits you because of all that you have done. And you can't do anything about it. That's offensive. And you have done wrong before a righteous and holy God, whether you've committed adultery or homosexuality or sexual morality or even just lust, whether you've murdered or stolen or or just been angry, whether you're a drunkard or greedy or impure or liar. It doesn't matter. You've done something. You've sinned. You've sinned a lot before God. and, And, you know, God is incredibly offended by that. But... That's an offensive message. Talk about a a bad way to start off your message. Who's going to want to hear that? I mean, it's so offensive, especially now. But that offense is necessary because unless that message is preached and that conviction is really wrought upon a person's soul, they will never truly accept the good news in the way that they need to. They will never truly embrace Jesus as Savior because they don't really need him. They don't really understand their need for a savior, and what that means. But once you really grasp the bad news, and you get it, you're convicted, you're you're brought low by your sin, then you're going to run to Jesus. You're going to run to the solution, the good news, that, that God in love provided a substitute for you, someone who would pay the penalty for you, who would take the judgment away from you, who would give you a new life, a transformed life, an everlasting life. You're going to want that. That's the real amazing part. But no one ever came to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ without first being convicted by their very offensive sin. It is offensive. But God is the one who's really being offended. So the message we preach, the message we can't abandon or water down, it it is by definition, by default, it's offensive. We're going to have to offend people to bring them a hope. But maybe you have second thoughts, maybe you have doubts, you're thinking, wait, is that really right? We're supposed to be offensive? I mean, we want to do that? But just, just look to Jesus and realize Jesus was incredibly offensive and he was terribly politically incorrect. Now, granted, it wasn't his personality. He wasn't being a jerk to people, and nor should you. He came speaking the truth. He represented the truth and they hated him for it. It was offensive to them. And you can't help that. He wasn't a racist. He wasn't hateful. He wasn't mean. He just spoke the truth. He let the light shine. He said a lot about sin and judgment and hell. But it offended people. But he still said it because in love, that's the only way they're going to be convicted and and run to him. The real offense is against God. He came to resolve that himself. We're going to see all of this come to play in our passage for this morning in Mark chapter 6. These first six verses mark a transition where now we're going to see more and more opposition build against Jesus. You all know Jesus has an appointment with a cross in Jerusalem where he's going to face rejection by the entire nation of Israel. But before that happens, this rejection is played out on a small scale, in his own hometown. His own friends and relatives and family members are, the, are going to be the ones who reject him first and foremost because he offended them. 
he was offensive. And once you see for yourselves, let's begin, read our passage through Mark 6, just the first six verses for now. Let's read this together. Mark 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. What we find here is actually quite an unbelievable story. In the previous chapter, Mark chapter 5, we, while studying the Gerasene demoniac, we found what might be one of the most unexpected stories in the Bible, But this here in Mark chapter 6 may be one of the most unbelievable stories in the Bible. Because of all people, of all people, who would you expect they would be the first to embrace Jesus and accept Jesus and love Jesus? I mean, his family, his own town, his childhood friends. But we come to find they were the ones who rejected him first and foremost. It's unbelievable that that could happen. We're going to relive this story now and make our way through these first six verses. And as we go, let me just point out to you, so you can follow along, ten unbelievable elements to Christ's homecoming. That's what this is. Ten unbelievable elements of Christ's homecoming. And he's coming home. You would you would think it would be a joyous occasion, a celebration. Maybe they'd have a welcoming parade for him. But it doesn't quite turn out like you might expect. And the result is quite an unbelievable story. Let's begin with this. Number one, Christ's unbelievable destination. Christ's unbelievable destination. Look again at verse one. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. You can stop there. We see Jesus. He's departing from the Sea of Galilee. He's been camped out in Capernaum for a while and he's going 20 miles southwest to his hometown, which is Nazareth. You know, You might remember his birth story, born in Jerusalem, went to Egypt for a little bit, came back, went to Nazareth. And he spent almost all of his life in Nazareth. But it's not really the place you would expect the Messiah to come from. It's a small town. Population, 500. That's a small town, even back then. It wasn't on any main roads. It was a backwoods, backwards town. Most people didn't even know about Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament once. And people who did know about it didn't have anything good to say about it. It's like Nathaniel who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like a worthless little podunk town. Nazareth sits in a high valley. It's surrounded by these high hills. And here's something really interesting. This is just for fun. If you were to walk up those south hills to the top of those south hills, you would come to overlook this massive plain. Do you know what that plain is called? It's called the Plains of Megiddo which just so happens to be the place where a very famous battle will take place. A battle known in Revelation as Harmageddon, which we call Armageddon. 
That's pretty amazing to think about, that Jesus spent almost his entire life just a short walk away from the location of man's final rebellion against God. Just right there. He grew up right next to it, the plains of Armageddon. But that's not what makes this destination so unbelievable. What makes this so stunning is that this is not the first time Jesus has returned home since launching his active ministry. He went back to Nazareth, Nazareth once before, and even then, things didn't turn out so well. Just keep your finger in Mark and just, just page over real quick to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. It's very early on in Luke 4, right after launching his ministry. He has garnered some early fame, so he's going to stop back at his old hometown. When he gets there, he enters the synagogue, he starts to teach. Things start off great. But as he reads to them this messianic passage from Isaiah, and then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, things start to take a turn for the worse. Because they understand what he's saying. They get it. He's claiming that that's him, that he's the Messiah. They, they get that, but they're not happy about it. Jesus knows the crowd is starting to turn against them, against him. So what does he do about it? He adds fuel to the fire. He gives them two illustrations, one from the great prophet Elijah, the other from Elisha. And both illustrations go to show that these prophets, they had no place in Israel. They had to go to the Gentiles to find people of faith. And the implication is obvious. Jesus is like these prophets and the Jews before him. They're just as faithless. And more faith can be found among the Gentiles. And just so you know, that was incredibly offensive to them. He really offended them. That is not a politically correct thing to say to those Jews. But he said it. And they were not happy. They went ballistic and it shows. Just look at Luke chapter 4, verse 28. Right after he said that. It says, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Did you know that? That at the beginning of his ministry, they already tried to kill him. And this is Nazareth. This is his own people. And they're trying to kill him. So what a way to begin your new ministry. And what a vote of no confidence from your own town. Now Jesus escapes, perhaps miraculously. He slips through, it says. We don't know how, but he doesn't come back. You wouldn't come back. Sounds about right. You're going to leave town. You're not going to come back. But that's what makes this destination so unbelievable, that now back in Mark 6, he's coming back. He's going back to Nazareth. You're saying, whoa, Jesus, wait a, wait a second. Are you sure you want to go back? Remember last time they tried to kill you. You really want to do this? But we find in Mark 6, about a year later, he's going back into the lion's den. Nazareth. And where does he go? Look at verse 2. You can turn back to Mark 6. He goes right into the synagogue. It says, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue once again. What's interesting here, though, is that in this stage of Christ's ministry, when he entered a city, he immediately was swamped by a crowd of people. Just immediately a crowd formed. He didn't have to wait until the Sabbath for a crowd to form. He just showed up, there's a crowd. But not in Nazareth. Jesus shows up, no one cares. No one assembles. No one's there. No one's seeking him out. Here Jesus has to wait until the Sabbath 
for a crowd to form. But come Sabbath, he goes in the synagogue, goes inside, starts to teach. And when he opens his mouth, here's where we find number two, Christ's unbelievable words. Christ's unbelievable words. Look again at verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? You stop there. And we don't know the content of Christ's teaching that day. We don't, we don't know what he said. But we do know the impact of his words. Verse 2 says, they were astonished. This word means they were bewildered, shocked, amazed at the teaching of Jesus. It's like you're walking down the street, minding your own business. Someone comes up to you and they take this ice-cold pitcher of water and they just throw it in your face. What would you do? You'd be so shocked, so bewildered, so stunned, you, you wouldn't even know how to react. And that's often the reaction, the force that Christ's teaching had on people. They were just so stunned. They didn't know what to say at first. This is often what Jesus did because he said some awfully unbelievable things. His teaching at times was just shocking. It was at times just plain, out, plain old offensive to people. And we don't know what he said, but maybe he said something like this, like he said elsewhere. Maybe like, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe he said that. Maybe he said, if your right eye makes you stumble, just tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Maybe he said, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Or maybe you said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These aren't popular messages at the time as well, offensive to people. What did he really say? We We don't know. But he spoke the truth with authority, and they recognized that. This was something different. This was a different teaching. And so they're asking in shock, where's this coming from? Where does he get these things? Where's he getting this wisdom? Jesus didn't have a degree. He didn't study under any famous rabbi, and they knew that. So he shouldn't be able to teach like this. Where's this coming from? Where's he getting these words? It's unbelievable. And where's he getting these works? Right after this, number three, they point to his works. Christ's unbelievable works. Thirdly now, his unbelievable works. At the end of verse 2, we also learn they were astounded by his works. They're asking, where did he get this wisdom? And, verse 2, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. News had traveled. These reports were spreading around that Jesus was working wonders. And some of those rumors made their way back into little Nazareth. They're hearing that he's healing lepers, curing blindness. The deaf are hearing again. The lame are walking again. They're asking themselves, where's this coming from? Where does he get this power? But understand, they're asking these questions in verse 2, not in belief, but in doubt. And they get what he's saying. They're tracking, like before, his words, his wisdom, his works. It's very clear. This is messianic. This is divine. But they won't believe. They're rejecting him as he speaks. And why? Well, because of pride and prejudice. 
They want to take him back down to their own level. Because they think they know who Jesus really is. He's just like them. He's ordinary. He's blue collar. He's no one special. There's no way he's the Messiah. There's just no way. Some people like to romanticize the childhood of Jesus to play up his deity. So they picture young Jesus, teenage Jesus, walking on water all over the place and multiplying bread and doing these miracles. But none of that ever happened. Jesus purposefully never worked a miracle before his formal ministry. And he purposely appeared as fully human to them. He was fully human. But that's only how the people of Nazareth knew him. Here, they're not attacking his character, rightly so. They're not saying he's a bad person. They're just saying he's ordinary. You're you're not special. They could gather he's claiming to be extraordinary, but they're like, no, you're not. We we know you. Imagine a kid grows up in a small town. Small town, everyone knows you. They know your reputation. Let's say he had this reputation of being a slacker. Just that loser kid never will amount to anything. Kid grows up, leaves town, goes to the big city, works hard, makes makes a name for himself. Strikes it rich through his labor. Comes back home to the little town. And what do they think of him? He's still that same slacker kid. It's hard to to shake that small town reputation. And here with Jesus, it's not that he had a bad reputation. It's that he had an ordinary reputation. Did you know that? He He was just ordinary. And they're thinking he can't just be this special. He didn't display these powers when he was growing up. His family's right here. They're not special. And we're supposed to believe you're the Messiah. But what makes this whole line of reasoning so so crazy, so unbelievable, is that they're still ignoring the elephant in the room. They still have no explanation for his words and his wisdom and his works. Okay, yeah, it's true. He grew up ordinary. Okay, but where do you get this power? You're still not explaining this. There's only one answer to the question. It's from above. But they bury their heads into the sand. They're not driven to know the true source of his power. They're only driven to confirm their private prejudice that he's just like them. He's not special. And we're going to see now in verse 3, the rest of the questions they ask are designed to only further drive their head in the sand. They point out his job. This is number four. Christ's unbelievable vocation. His line of work, they ask in verse 3, is this not the carpenter? I mean, to them, they think he's just a blue-collar guy, just a worker. He's worked a very ordinary job his entire life, and it's true. And so now we're to believe he's the chosen one? I mean, to Jews, the fact that the Messiah would first be a, a laborer, a carpenter, is just crazy. That's unbelievable. No, the Messiah, I mean, at least he's going to be like a Pharisee or a scribe, maybe a priest, but not a carpenter. But Jesus, the Messiah, indeed, first was a lowly carpenter. He followed the profession of Joseph. But you know, the word here actually means more than just a carpenter. The word is tecton. We get our word architecture from it. And it really just means builder. Someone who used wood and stone and metal to just create things as a craftsman. Now, wood was the primary, most easily readable or uh, attainable material. So that's why most think of him as a carpenter. But, but I think it's more fitting that he be known as a builder, as just a craftsman, one who, who makes things. Because that's what he does. That's what Jesus does. Whether in heaven or on earth, he makes things. 
Now, again, just for the fun of it, what's really interesting to think about here is, is during the time when Jesus would have been growing up, Herod Antipas, he built a capital palace, a city called Sepphoris, just four miles north of Nazareth, like right next door. And when he built that palace, he recruited local craftsmen from the nearby towns to build it. So this means, we don't really know, but this means it's entirely possible that Joseph and Jesus could have worked there. They could have worked to help build that palace, which just means, if that happened, would it be pretty interesting that Jesus could have worked to build a palace for the same man who would later mock him during his crucifixion and send him off to die? We don't know, but it's pretty unbelievable as well. For now, though, they're just pointing out the problem that he's only a carpenter. He's nothing more than a carpenter. Next comes Christ's unbelievable birth. This is number five, Christ's unbelievable birth. And here's where a little cultural insight comes in handy because what they actually say here is an insult. They are insulting him. Verse three, they continue and ask, isn't this the son of Mary? And here's the thing, men were always in that culture, always identified as the son of their father, even if the father had died. And most likely at this point, Joseph was dead. But it doesn't matter. They still should have called him the son of Joseph. The fact that they didn't means they're casting a stigma on Jesus and his mother. It's a subtle insult that is designed to raise doubts about the legitimacy of Christ's birth. And you know, there are other passages, a couple other in the New Testament, that confirm that the rumors had spread about his illegitimate birth. That Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. And some people may have even heard Joseph was not the father. What a scandal. I'm sure as they moved into Nazareth, the people viewed them with raised eyebrows and suspicious glances. They were a a broken family, they thought. If only they really knew the truth. Mary was not an adulteress, as other Jews called her. But it's true. Joseph wasn't the father. God was the father. When Jesus said, I have come forth from the Father into the world, he actually meant it literally. Nazarenes thought that Christ's birth was unbelievable in the sense of being illegitimate, but if only they knew, in this case, how truly unbelievable it really was. It wasn't illegitimate, it was divine. But to the unbelieving, his birth has always been a stumbling block. Well, next they point to his family. Number six, Christ's unbelievable family. They continue to ask in verse 3, Is this not the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Again, their line of questioning seeks to confirm that, that they all know who Jesus really is. He's just, he's just a guy. He's a normal guy. He's no one special. We, his family's right here. He just can't be the Messiah. We learn of his four brothers. Just remember this from Mark chapter 3, from John 7. We know at this time that even his own brothers were not believing in him. They rejected him too. You go back, you get the sermon on Mark chapter 3, verse 21. You get the full picture of how his own family members, except Mary, Mary, his mother, did believe, but the rest, his siblings, they thought he was crazy. They thought he had lost his senses. They think to themselves, Jesus, enough is enough. You've got to quit it with this religious fanaticism. It's going to get you killed. It's going to be bad for the family. You just have to stop this. They thought he was crazy. Thankfully, though, his own family members would not remain in unbelief. At the right time, God opened their eyes to see their half-brother for who he really was, and they believed. 
The sisters are mentioned just in passing. There's at least three of them. They're unnamed. Most likely they were married at this point, but they're still in Nazareth because it's the type of town where you don't leave. It's a small town. You just stay there. And they're probably still around. But look at the end of verse 3. What is the net result of their confrontation and questioning of Jesus? Verse 3 it says, And they took offense at him. This is a very special word for offense. It's scandalizo. It means to stumble, to offend. We would say to scandalize. Jesus scandalized them. He stumbled them with the truth. Jesus elsewhere says, if you stumble someone because of your sin or your error, woe unto you. But if you stumble someone because you're just speaking the truth in love, well, you can't help it. So be it. Jesus did that all the time. He stumbled people all the time. It's because the truth is offensive. And that's why they rejected him. Jesus was like a rejected stone. Being a builder, he would have known this just perfectly. Stone masons, when they were working to build something, they would first look at their handful of stones, examine them. If any were cracked or misshapen, they would discard them. They would reject the stone, cast it aside. And you know what? That's Jesus. He is that rejected stone. He's deemed unworthy by his own people and cast aside. But to God, he takes that rejected stone and what does he do? He makes it a cornerstone. It's the most precious stone. And if you believe in him, he'll make you a living stone in this house that he's building called the church. If you believe in him, you will not be disappointed. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. But the rest, those who reject, those who discard the stone of Jesus, they will in turn trip and stumble over him to their own destruction. He becomes their stumbling block. And that's how 1 Peter 2, 7 continues. It says, This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's the same word, scandalon. Jesus was their offense this afternoon. They stumbled over the truth of his identity, who he was. What did he say? We don't know what he said, but we know that he claimed to be more than just a carpenter, more than just a son, more than just a brother. We gather that from the questions they're asking. They understand he's claiming to be more than ordinary. That's why they're trying to say, no, you're not. He's claiming to be extraordinary, to be messianic, to be divine. But their pride and prejudice got in the way. They rejected Jesus. They stumbled over him. The response was, no, you're, you're not who you claim to be. But they still couldn't explain his words, his wisdom, and his works. Thankfully, they didn't go to the extreme of the Pharisees and claimed he got his power from Satan. There's still hope for them. But their recourse was to drive Jesus out. They wanted nothing to do with him. They just told him to go away, presumably. And this is the last we'll see Jesus in Nazareth before he dies. But before he leaves, he says this to them. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. This is number 7. Christ's unbelievable dishonor. Christ's unbelievable dishonor. When a sports team wins a championship, 
and they return home to their town. What happens? The city throws them a parade. It's a celebration. They give the MVP a key to the city. It's unbelievable enough that Jesus was not received like this when he came into Nazareth. They should have been championing him. He was, he's the hero of all Israel. I mean, they, of all people, they should be raising him up on their shoulders and celebrating Jesus. But he gets none of that. And to the uh, exact opposite, he is dishonored. His own town, his own relatives, his own family members. He's not even shown the honor of a prophet, which is striking because elsewhere, even at this point, all the Jews thought, well, he's at least a prophet. Whether or not he's the Messiah, we don't know yet, but he's at least a prophet. And they honored him like a prophet, but not in Nazareth. As the saying goes, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. There's a consequence to this. Their unbelief, their dishonor, in turn leads to number eight, Christ's unbelievable restraint. His unbelievable restraint. Verse five, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's like he was disabled. Now, at first you might think this was an involuntary weakness in Jesus, that he's not able to heal people unless they believe in him. But that's not true. This verse itself says that's, that's not true. A few people were desperate enough to come and, and be healed, and, and he had the power. He didn't lose that power to heal, but he did lose the will to heal. In the face of such rejection, his miracles became meaningless, so he held them back. You have to remember, Jesus is not just some miracle worker interested in going around and impressing people. It's not his goal at all. He works wonders because they are signs, signs which testify of the truth that he is the divine Messiah. But here's the deal with Nazareth. They had already seen the clear truth that Jesus is the divine Messiah, and they had already rejected the clear truth. So what do they need a sign for? They've already rejected the purpose of the sign. So a miracle would only add to their condemnation. Don't forget this. Unbelievers, they don't have a miracle problem. They say, oh, if I just see a miracle, I'll believe. No, they won't. Like Jesus himself said, if they won't listen to the scriptures, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. It's not a miracle problem they have. And here Jesus There's no purpose in giving them anything more. They don't need signs. They've already rejected the truth. So Christ will depart from them without doing anything more for them. He will not return. As he goes, he wonders. Verse 6, he wonders at their unbelief. This is number 9, Christ's unbelievable wonder. Usually it's the other way around. Usually it's people wondering at Jesus. They marvel at him. There's only two occasions that Scripture records Jesus marveling at people. The first is in Matthew chapter 8, where this Roman centurion comes up to Jesus and he's begging him for help to heal his servant who's paralyzed at home. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll go with you. I'll go heal him. But the centurion's like, no, 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 I'm not worthy. You just, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus marvels at his faith because not even in Israel has he found someone with that much Faith. Here's a Gentile who comes and, and really believes in who Jesus is. But the people of Nazareth did not, and this is the second occasion where Jesus marvels. Only, it's not at their belief. It is at their unbelief. And you know, Wando, it's really unbelievable in this story. It's their unbelief. Their unbelief is unbelievable. 
you know, when a candidate runs for president, he can at least count on winning his home state in the election. But not Jesus. He's losing his own hometown. And we see this trend continue in the Gospels that the least likely people you would think would come to salvation, like the garrison demoniac, they're the ones who become the greatest believers. But the people you think are the most likely to accept Jesus, like the Pharisees, his own town, his own family, they're the ones who reject him the most. Unbelief is always so unbelievable. I mean, who would choose unbelief? Who would choose to have their sins remain? Who doesn't want peace and joy and hope that's found in, in, in Christ? Who doesn't want to be reconciled to God? Who doesn't want to have eternal life? I mean, unbelief, do you ever think this way? It just seems so dumb, so foolish, so irrational, and it is. Now, we know, of course, those in the world, they say the exact same thing about us, that our belief is so dumb. But you know, if your eyes have been opened to the truth, if you've been born again, you know, you see things clearly. It changes everything. For these Nazarenes, though, even though we know God must open their eyes, their unbelief is still unbelievable. Because at least humanly speaking, they should have been the first ones to sign up to follow Jesus. We're with you. But they weren't. And we too wonder at their unbelief. But when you think about that, it just makes the last part of this story all the more unbelievable. Lastly, number 10, Christ's unbelievable sacrifice. Christ's unbelievable sacrifice. You can probably guess this doesn't come from Mark 6. It's not in the text. It comes from the end of his life which we know elsewhere. But if there's one thing more unbelievable than Jesus being rejected by his own people, his own town, his own family, it's the fact that he would still die for them. That's unbelievable. Even the widespread rejection Jesus faced did not keep him from dying for them. And it's part of the plan. He was to be Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who was despised and forsaken of men. He was meant to be rejected. He was rejected by the people he came to save. Even the Father would turn his face away because he was to be made sin. He was to die for the sins of many, for the sins of his enemies. You know, when Jesus died, that's who he died for, his enemies. Everyone was an enemy of God when he died. But he still died for them, to reconcile them to God. That's unbelievable. That God would even do this, that he would even send Jesus. didn't have to, we didn't deserve it, to take our sins upon himself, to pay that penalty of God's wrath, to offer us just eternal life in return for free. It's unbelievable. Thankfully, it's true. And that's, that's the good news part. That's the part we rejoice in. And it can be true for you as well. It can be yours. And from your perspective, it all comes down to, though, what are you going to do with Jesus? You've seen his words, his wisdom, his works. What are you going to do? You're going to accept him? You're going to reject him? And over in John chapter 6, a passage we've looked at so many times, it's such a relevant, powerful passage, but... It's this passage where Jesus, he's doing some teaching and he's being very offensive. It's just one of his most offensive teaching times, actually. Just really radical. He was being very politically incorrect. 
He's teaching some wild truths about God and salvation and sovereignty. And people were getting so offended. Just listen to this, John 6, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? He knew. He was turning up the heat. He was giving them the truth. But he knew right then and there they were turning against him because it was offensive. It's just the truth about God, salvation, and more. But he knew they were turning on him in their hearts. He goes on, verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. They claim to be disciples, but they didn't believe. It says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. I mean, talk about rejection. Even one of the twelve, those closest to him, would reject him, would turn on him, would not believe. That is pretty unbelievable in itself. But what about you? You claim to follow. Do you really believe? Verse 66 says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. He stumbled them so much, they just they cashed out. Like, we're, we're done. We're not disciples of Jesus anymore. They, they gave up. It's too offensive. What about you? You've, you've heard his words. You see his works. What do you make of him? Where do you stand? Jesus said to the twelve right after this, verse 67. He said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Lay down the gauntlet. It's like, what, what's it going to be? Where do you guys stand? Do I offend you? In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You've seen, you've heard who Jesus is. He's the only one who can save you, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. What's it going to be? Will you re- accept? Will you reject? Will you follow? Will you not? Make up your mind. I pray your response, though, is like that of Simon. Where are we going to go? Who else are we going to follow? Because we know and we have believed that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Lord Peter's confession this morning is our confession. And we are convicted of it yet again, that we do confess and believe that you sent your Son into the world to live, to die for sin, to rise again, and that he is the Holy One of God, the only one that can save. And he has. We thank you for all that we have in Christ, our new birth, our forgiveness, our redemption, our reconciliation, our adoption, our justification. And we look forward to our glorification when he comes back and we are with him. Thank you so much for for your Son. Lord, in our own hearts, there's rejection, there's unbelief. We once, we once were your enemies. We once were those who rejected you until you came into our lives and, and made us born again. We thank you for that, and our heart goes out now for those who, who are not there. Pray for here, or anyone here, or, or any one of our loved ones, those outside of this church who do not know you, who are rejecting you, that you humble them in their unbelief. I pray, Lord, that they grapple with the bad news that we are all justly condemned as sinners before a holy God and that it's 
That's not a good thing. But then may they truly understand all the more so and embrace the good news. That there's an answer in Christ. He can forgive. He can redeem. He can save. But will you believe? Where we believe and we pray for the salvation of our loved ones. And I pray as we leave from here this morning, we rejoice in our Savior. We, we, we smile at Him for all that He's done for us. We live accordingly. Give Him our lives. Because where are we going to go? Lord, you are the one who has saved us. And Jesus is the Holy One of God. We lift you up. In your name we pray. Amen.